This is The Granite Beat, a podcast where we highlight New Hampshire journalists, ask them about recent stories they've published, and about what it's like to cover their corner of this small and interesting state. I'm Julie Hershan Hart, and I'm here with Adam Japshow. Hello. We're excited to have as our guest today Stephen Porter, one of the two reporters given the historic assignment of launching a New Hampshire bureau for the Boston Globe at the beginning of this year. His prior experience includes USA Today, where he served as editor for the state of Maine, as well as on the opinion desk. Thank you for joining us, Stephen. Thank you for having me. Would you please tell us when and how you first became interested in journalism and how you were able to find a way into the career? Absolutely. So I I have to laugh a little bit because I, um, in undergrad, did not originally kind of eye journalism as my career path. I was a media communication major, so I did a lot more with like video production, television, and that sort of thing, not TV news, but television. And I was about halfway through that program when I realized that I had some time in my schedule before before I was going to graduate. And I said, okay, what is the nearest thing that I can add on? And I added on a journalism minor. And I realized that I am much more interested in kind of nonfiction storytelling as opposed to fiction storytelling. So that was kind of my entry point, undergrad, realizing that I had a convenient opportunity there. So I took it and that was that was my starting point. Could you tell me how the Granite Memo came about? Why did you embark on that and how do you think it helped your, your career? Yeah, so Granite Memo is the newsletter and website that I launched focused exclusively on New Hampshire politics. So kind of backing up a little bit, I spent a few years after grad school working for a business-to-business publication in healthcare, which was a really great experience, gave me an opportunity to kind of you know gain some skills that I maybe would not have gotten working for newspapers. But after a few years of that, I said, you know, I'm really, I'm really itching to get back into the, the type of journalism that I started out in, which is, you know, the, the, the stuff that, that really matters for the day to day, not just for a niche audience, but for kind of the general public. And so I was at this publication, I was living in Portsmouth, commuting to Middleton, Massachusetts, and it was 2019. And the, the presidential primary was unfolding in my backyard. And I said, man, I, I really want a piece of that action. So I, I said, I'm going to launch this publication as an excuse to show up at campaign events and cover them. And I'm going to pick up freelance reporting assignments. So in 2019, I was really fiddling around with this prototype of this newsletter, started out on Substack. And then after the, the 2020 presidential cycle wrapped up, I had really only fiddled with it. And so I kept my day job throughout that whole process. But fast forward to fall of last year, I was at USA Today, working remotely, still living in the seacoast of New Hampshire. And I said, all right, if I'm going to cover this, if I'm going to kind of, you know, really get in position for the 2024 primary, not to mention the 2022 midterms, I really need to go full bore on on Granite Memo. So I, I kind of zhuzhed it up. I moved it over to from Substack over to this publication or this platform rather called Ghost. And I said, okay, I'm going to do this full time, made some kind of strategic decisions financially in order to make that feasible, uh, just on a personal level. And then I left my job last fall at USA Today and said, okay, I'm going to report on New Hampshire full time and really get behind this Granite Memo product. And I think that there are really two motivations that were behind that move. 
one, I wanted to cover New Hampshire. Like, like I, I really am, I've been here about six years looking to put down roots, have been putting down roots. And then the other is I wanted to build something. So kind of those two motivations were really central to why I was launching Granite Memo. And because of that, <laughs> I got the attention of the globe. So I was only a couple of months into doing that full time when I got a call from the editor of the globe at the time who said, hey, we're looking to launch a newsletter in New Hampshire about New Hampshire. You're already there. You're already doing that. How would you like to do that sort of thing for us? And I, uh, I said, well, duh. <laughs> that would be like, like, like this is kind of uh, the best case scenario. I get to cover my backyard and build something in the process while really putting my, my journalistic skills to use. So I, I was just floored that they would reach out and, and offer this opportunity in that as you mentioned, started at the beginning of 2023. I have a question about that transition, but first I'd like to know, what did you learn from this process of the Granite Memo project? How did the, what did you learn about journalism, about publishing, sorry, about publishing, and what do you take away from that experience? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I think that there is a lot of opportunity to create in a digital space that doesn't necessarily have, ooh, do I use this word? Okay, I'm going to use it, baggage. It doesn't have the baggage of a legacy publication. And I think that, you know, the, the baggage can be a credential and the baggage can also be kind of a detriment. And so I've seen it work both ways. You know, there's, there's a momentum that comes with joining an established publication, and I, I'm thrilled to be doing that now. But I've also seen where, uh, you know, a, a legacy publication can really struggle to, to grow an audience and find its footing in a digital space. And so I think that the one of the biggest and most exciting things about what I was kind of experimenting with was was the ability to just kind of make it from scratch. You know, there, there's no kind of preconceived notion about what exactly it looks like. And so I think that would be one one lesson, one takeaway is um, the, the the virtue, if you will, of allowing that space for journalists to kind of experiment and create and define their their product for themselves. So that was one piece of it. And then I think the other piece is finding the the best way to connect with with the audience. Who's your target audience and, and how do you deliver what they need in their moment? So it's not just about you, the journalist, it's really about about the audience and, and kind of how they're receiving what you're sending out and whether that's email or, you know, search engine optimization with the, the website side of things. I think it's really important to kind of listen for that feedback loop. So what was it like then to create something that had no sort of brand identity in the Grand, Granite Memo? to go right from that into something that probably has the strongest brand identity in the region than the Boston Globe? I think that people return my calls now, uh, which is which is nice. Because <laughs> uh, every time I'd interview people uh, with when I was doing Granite Memo, it was like, hey, I'm Stephen Porter with Granite Memo, which is a publication that I have started because of X, Y, you know, so it was always introducing myself at every every stage. Whereas now it's like, hey, I'm Stephen Porter with the Boston Globe but I'm in New Hampshire full time. I'm not in Massachusetts. That's what I always tell them because they always think, whoa, why did you drive up from, from Massachusetts? And I said, no, 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 I'm in New Hampshire full time. So I, I think that absolutely that was a, a significant transition. And I think that it, it one, people return my calls and two, there's also on that audience side of the equation, there's also kind of 
honestly higher expectations you know like like they there's this expectation of each individual story really carrying a level of significance that's that's different from when, when i was doing my own thing i could do a tiny little story that's you know 300 words and and just because hey this is interesting whereas now if i if i do that same sort of story people read it as as being potentially much more significant in a way like like, like they're kind of like what's the point why are you covering this and i said oh because it's interesting oh you know they, so there's kind of a, a a component there where i have to anticipate how how the audience receives things differently because it's under the globe brand rather than under the you know no name Stephen porter granite memo brand has that been a challenge to explain to people that even though you're from the boston globe you are you are reporting from a new hampshire bureau has that taken some explanation has that changed people's perception of your work i think it's taken some explanation but we anticipated that going in and so I think that's why we had such a big announcement. We made such a big deal about establishing this Globe Bureau in New Hampshire, specifically because we knew that we wanted people to know <laughs> that we were on the ground in New Hampshire. Uh, and to be clear, you know, we've been covering New Hampshire all along. The Globe has. We've got people who live in New Hampshire and work out of the Boston office. We have people who live in Massachusetts who come into New Hampshire to cover stories, you know, as the news dictates. But this move into New Hampshire was really an effort to uh, kind of establish our presence here full time. And I think that that big announcement at the front end was a really intentional choice that that acknowledged uh, kind of the um, the case that we've been making all along, which is that we're here. We're covering the news. We're here full time. So with what you said about people ex- having a certain expectation about the nature of stories that would be published in the Globe, how do you and your colleague, Amanda Goki, how do you all decide which stories are for covering in your paper? You know, that's really an ongoing process. I think that, you know, we, we talk about the Globe as being not the paper of record, but the paper, in many ways, the paper of interest. So we're we're not necessarily going to be covering you know individual school board meetings and that sort of thing but if there's a trend across multiple school districts in new hampshire that's something that we're interested in it, it does it affect multiple sets of people is this highly atypical or highly typical if we can kind of find a story that fits either of those um, those avenues, I think that that's that's where we say, okay, this might, we're on to something here. You know, this this trend that we're seeing across multiple jurisdictions is something that affects a lot of Granite Staters. Therefore, we're going to pursue it. Or maybe, hey, this thing that we saw in this one particular place at this one particular time is so atypical. That we're going to cover it because it's atypical. And so I think it just kind of challenges us to think really intentionally about where we're dedicating our limited resources. And everybody's got limited resources, obviously, but I think that we just have to think really, really clearly about why we're telling each story that we're telling. I'd like to ask you about a specific story, the one that was published on September 15th regarding Mark Brave, the Stafford, Stratford County Sheriff. Could you tell me how did this story first come to your attention? Yeah, so there were other news outlets that uh, were covering the, um, the the criminal investigation that had been opened into Stratford County Sheriff Mark Brave. 
So I don't remember which outlet it was. It might have been uh, Foster's Daily Democrat, which is the, the local paper that predominantly covers Dover uh, and the surrounding areas. But there was some initial reporting about this criminal investigation that had been opened. And honestly, when I first saw those reports, I thought, oh, this is a, a pretty interesting investigation that's been opened. It's probably about an individual incident that occurred, or maybe it's about you know a small number of incidents that occurred. So we were keeping an eye on it, right? Ultimately, when we really started reporting in earnest on this was when the attorney general's office released an affidavit when the sheriff was arrested. And this affidavit outlined a, a really extensive pattern of alleged dishonest behavior on the part of Sheriff Grave while in office. And so that's when we recognized, oh, this is this is not a situation that you know involves uh, a couple of uh, uh, meals that he expensed. This is a situation that really involves a matter of accountability for a very powerful office in Stratford County. And so the direct answer to your question is we started paying attention back when there were the initial news reports, and then we really started pushing on reporting after that affidavit came out. And I can tell you about that particular story that published on the 15th in a bit more detail. So as I mentioned, the affidavit came out and it alleged a really extensive pattern of dishonest behavior. And I said to my editor, look, if even half of this information as alleged is true, then this sheriff has been dishonest about a lot. And so I asked my editor, I wonder what else he's been dishonest about, allegedly. And so that's when I started reviewing his work history and educational background in detail. I went and I pulled up his LinkedIn resume and I pulled as many past news articles as I could find um, about everything that he had done up until, the, up until this point. And so I just started calling schools, employers, uh, anybody I could get on the phone to, to confirm, hey, did he actually work at this place? Did he actually go to this school? Did he actually get a degree at this school? And that story that we published on September 15th revealed that he has been saying publicly for years that he attended Southern New Hampshire University for a forensic psychology program. He has claimed that he had a bachelor's and a master's from there. But this story on September 15th revealed that he doesn't have either of those degrees. So he really misrepresented his educational background while on the campaign trail in 2020. And so, you know, this is an example of a story where a public official has not only allegedly misused public funds, but has misrepresented his education while campaigning for public office. Uh, so obviously, that's the sort of story that we at The Globe are going to cover. We're all about public accountability and that sort of thing. So absolutely, we're going to cover that story. We did push the story even farther than that, though. So the story on September 15th didn't just talk about Southern New Hampshire University. It also talked about um, there were some stray references in past news reports to another university where supposedly, according to these news reports, he had attended Adelphi University. That's not the case. Sheriff Brave told me that he's never claimed to have attended Adelphi University. Um, and then there were also some some uh, exaggerations with with his work history. For example, he claimed on LinkedIn to have worked as a Maine Capitol Police officer in Augusta for, I believe it was 27 months. And he told me in an interview that he had worked there a few years. And the agency said, nope, he was there nine months. 
and that's borne out by uh, a job application that he filled out previously. So we were very thorough in the reporting on this uh, because we view it as a matter of accountability. Would you be able to say how much time it took to follow this investigation? No. <laughs> um, I did not I did not keep track. It was a significant amount of time, but it was one of those things where you know, I would work on it two hours one day, 20 minutes the next, four hours the next day, that sort of thing. So it really kind of wove that investigation into my day-to-day work. So I, I was definitely, I would say, over, you know, 30 hours in that story for sure. How has Sheriff Brave responded to these discrepancies that you've uncovered? Yeah, so I interviewed him and he was, it did not take much uh, in the interview for him to admit that he does not have the degrees from Southern New Hampshire University. I think that as I started asking my questions, he saw where things <laughs> things were headed. And, and so he, he said, look, I don't have these degrees. Um, and so at first he said, oh, there's um, an unpaid bill that Southern New Hampshire University is is withholding my transcript because of this unpaid bill. And then he said, well, I, I didn't I didn't finish the coursework for these programs. So so there are at least two kind of reasons there that he raised as the basis for not having his degrees. But he insists that he enrolled. He says, I enrolled at Southern New Hampshire University. I just didn't finish the degree programs. But the representatives from the school said that they have no record of him having ever enrolled. So there's a kind of lingering disagreement there, dispute where he claims to have actually attended, and the school says they don't have any record of him actually attending. So that was his direct response to the matter with regard to the schools. In the bigger picture, he has said that he has done nothing wrong. So the the allegations from the Attorney General's office, he says, are part of a racist and politically motivated campaign against him. And he said he's done nothing wrong and basically, you know, stands by his innocence and he's slated to uh, have an arraignment. So um, he will have his day in court. I wonder, have you had any sort of uh, reaction to this story since it's been published? We have. We've had some, you know, expressions of surprise from people who endorsed him and campaigned with him. We've certainly had kind of a recognition that this is something that we wish that we had known years ago. You know, I live in the Seacoast and I worked at Seacoast Media Group when he campaigned in 2020. Seacoast Media Group publishes Foster's Daily Democrat. And so I think that there's there's kind of this, I had to do some soul searching <laughs> to to uh, say, you know, like, did we miss this? Like, like, is this something that we, we, the press should have caught in 2020? And, you know, I, I think it's so hard to, to hold anyone in, you know, the public accountable for not catching this, this deception, this alleged deception. But, but I think that's been part of the reaction as well is just kind of saying, wow, how did this go on for so long? That actually is my next question, because in addition to the surprise at the just bewildering array of falsehoods that he that your investigation uncovered was also an equally large amount of falsehoods that were repeated by local media organizations who took him at his word. And I wonder how you think about that, as you already started to speak about, but also what you think we as reporters should take away from this story. I think that the most immediate takeaway for 
electoral coverage, you know, covering the competition ahead of an election is kind of as you alluded to in your question, the, the importance to not take things at face value. I think it's the old Ronald Reagan quote who may have been quoting a Russian proverb when he said, you know, the trust but verify adage. And so I think that that's absolutely true in our day-to-day work. I do think that there's, I mentioned having some soul searching about this particular race, you know, is this something that we should have caught in 2020? And I, I have a hard time coming down on the side of yes. You know, I have a hard time uh, coming I have a hard time being too hard on those of us who did not say, okay, I'm so skeptical of this individual candidate that I'm going to go through the legwork of 30 plus hours to, to vet every single line item in his, his resume, you know, like that level of vetting is really only something that you do when you have reason to suspect that there might be something wrong. And, you know, in 2020, did we have those reasons? Maybe. Maybe we did, maybe we missed those. But in the absence of like a really concrete basis to suspect dishonesty, I think that we have to recognize that there's just only so much that we can do at a given time. And so we have to follow kind of follow the tips where they lead, but uh, not beat ourselves up too much when uh, when it takes us a little bit while to get to the final report. And I part of me hates to say that because I would love to have kind of this omniscience about what each and every elected official is up to and, and anything that they've said that misrepresents reality. But I recognize that we are just individuals in the equation and, and uh, we just got to keep our noses to the grindstone. I noticed that in addition to having a, an A plus Twitter handle, uh, report, <laughs> Porter Reporter, or is it Reporter Porter? Reporter Porter. Reporter Porter. That you're a very prolific user of the um, social media platform formerly known as Twitter. Do you continue to use it? Have you found that its functionality has changed since since Elon Musk took over? There are days where the platform has seemed awfully rickety since Elon Musk took over. So I've I've definitely experienced kind of you know, challenges just with the user experience side of things. I've also, you know, I've also asked myself, should I even be on this platform? You know, like, like, I think that there's been a a conversation among journalists and certainly among the broader public about, you know, whether this is one, a healthy space for people to, to be exchanging ideas. And two, is it a useful tool. And I, I still come down on the side of it being a useful tool. And I think that as long as, you know, a significant portion of our audience is there, I will continue probably <laughs> to be there to, to some degree. I have actually scaled back a little bit on my Twitter usage, but, uh, but I still find it to be a useful tool. So I, I still use it. It's an interesting time regarding Twitter because there are so many working journalists today who in one way or another owe their career to Twitter to what they were able to do with the platform. And it's been, uh, has been so useful to profession. And yet it is going through this moment right now. And it doesn't seem, I guess the, the other point is that there's nothing really to replace it. Right. I have started using a couple of other platforms, including threads and, and I just, they haven't caught on the way that, that Twitter has. Are you working on any stories right now that you'd like to tease? I always try to be very careful <laughs> about forward-looking statements. I uh, I don't want to run afoul of my editor and have her say, "Why did you? Why did you divulge all of this this juicy detail about uh, what's in the work?" So I don't want to say too much, but I, I can say, you know, um, 
uh, with the Sheriff Brave situation. That's a storyline that we're going to continue following. Uh, he's slated to be arraigned uh, this week and also has um, uh, certainly a, a long process ahead. So we will continue to follow that storyline. Additionally, politics is something that we're paying a lot of attention to, not just for the presidential primary, but for the gubernatorial race as well. So I think that you can expect quite a bit more reporting from us in the months ahead on those topics. Excellent. We'll look forward to that. Uh, Julie, I believe uh, you have some questions for our guest. I do. Um, Stephen, you talked a little bit about legacy media organizations, you know, having trouble gaining a foothold in a digital space. Um, what do you think is the future of journalism in New Hampshire or journalism more broadly? I like to think of journalism not as kind of being a one-size-fits-all business model. I like to think about the ecosystem and the the fact that some outlets are nonprofits, some outlets are for profit, some are, you know, much more kind of buzzy magazine um, in flavor, and others are very staid and uh, you know traditional in in AP style. So I think that. I hope the future of journalism in New Hampshire encompasses all of those. And the same is true for, for really the nation and, and I guess the whole world to some extent. But my hope is that the future of journalism in New Hampshire has vibrant for-profit and vibrant nonprofit outlets competing, but in a friendly sort of way, because I think that we have a really good vibe in New Hampshire of collaboration. And there are people who have worked very intentionally to make that the case, and I'm appreciative to them. Uh, and I hope that that continues. Does that answer your question? Absolutely. I heard someone recently use the term coopetition to describe journalism in New Hampshire, and I think it's very accurate. So given that emerging landscape, what advice would you have for someone interested in making journalism their career? If I'm talking to someone who is preparing to go to school for journalism, um, or maybe still in school, I would say find a secondary specialty. And I don't mean that you won't be able to find a career full time in journalism. What I mean is, I think that if you can find not just a breadth of knowledge, not just a generalist, but also find a specialty where you have a particular set of experiences or, or you know, understanding that sets you apart from the pack, I think that can be really valuable. And so, you know, if you're have the opportunity to add a, a business minor or, or, I don't know, a psychology minor, something to that effect, I think could be really valuable. And then the, for anyone who's already kind of in their career or moving forward, I would say, you know, there's nothing like experience. So find an excuse to put yourself in the room, find an excuse to get yourself in the door. Back to my experience with Granite Memo, <laughs> you know, that was just me, right? I, I just launched this newsletter, but I used that to show up at campaign events and interview presidential candidates. I, I wasn't getting one-on-one -on -one interviews, but I was joining the, the press gaggle. And I specifically remember in 2019 participating in uh, coverage of the New Hampshire Democratic Party's convention when all of the presidential candidates came through. And um, it was there that I, I met um, James Pindle from The Globe. And he's been, 
really significant in kind of my joining the team at the Globe. So th- there's there's constantly these opportunities that are in the rooms and you can just find an excuse to put yourself in the room. Now, obviously, you have to kind of know what you're doing to behave in a responsible manner once you get in the room. But I think that there there may be a tendency, especially from kind of older school legacy journalist mindsets that say, oh, you need kind of the backing of a big name brand in order to do journalism. And you don't. You don't need the backing of a big neighbor. And it helps people return your calls, but uh, you don't necessarily need that to, to do the work. Absolutely. Um, and speaking of your work, Stephen, where could people go to see it? To stay on top of what Globe New Hampshire is publishing, go to globe.com slash NH. Thank you. Well, Stephen, I think we're all out of questions for you. Is there anything else you'd like to say? I would like to apologize for my neighbor mowing their lawn. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Other than that, I don't think I have anything else uh, to add at this point. That's okay. It it adds just a a relaxing summertime ambiance to to our conversation. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. Uh, It's been a pleasure talking with you. Likewise. Thanks so much. Thanks, Stephen. The Granite Beat is a project of the Granite State News Collaborative in partnership with the Laconia Daily Sun. We record at the Lakeport Opera House, and our theme music is composed by Bob McCarthy. Thanks also to the Marlin Fitzwater Center at Franklin Pierce University for editing and other support.